everyone, my name is Maria Milosevic and welcome to EduTech XP. From Educational Technology Department and Zaland University, we are bringing to you the fascinating story about technology-enhanced and computer-supported collaborative learning and how learning designs affect the technical and technological requirements of the tools that we are using in such a collaborative online learning setting. On this topic, we are talking to the professor Pandelis Papadopoulos from University of Twente in Netherlands. Professor Papadopoulos holds a PhD in Information and Communication Technologies from Aristoteles University in Greece. However, the diversity of his interests brought to him as well the diverse opportunities to participate or lead projects all over the world, which includes his experiences in Qatar, Macau, Denmark and now Netherlands. He has been in collaboration with Educational Technology Department in Zaland, And one of the collaborative researches that he has conducted was connected with audience response systems and Saga tool, which was one of many other interesting projects that he has done, such as the Cube, Colmook, Erasmus Plus project, Arabiati and many others. His work as well has been published in more than 60 top-ranking international peer-reviewed journals and conferences. So... Let's go straight to the interview and hear out Professor Papadopoulos talking about how the academic and practical implications of these research projects shape education and educational technology. Hello everyone and welcome to EduTech XP. My name is Maria and I would like to welcome our next guest, Professor Pandelis Papadopoulos from yeah. University of Twente uh, from Netherlands. Professor, uh, did I do it right? Uh, you did with it the perfectly, name. actually. Yeah, and thank you for having me. You did it perfectly. Uh, you did your training and you pronounced my name perfectly and not many people do that. Thank you. Thank you. I have tried out a few times, so I'm glad that <laughs> did, did sounded right. Uh, how are you? And tell you, thank you one more time for being here with us and uh, having the time to talk about uh, uh, the projects and some very specific uh, concepts that will follow in the interview. Yes, uh, well, I'm fine. I hope you are well as well. I'm uh, uh, in Enskede uh, at home right now for the interview. and. Uh, Let's see how it goes. The weather is nice, so the mood is fine, and people are going back out again after a lot of things that happened during the pandemic. So, yeah, the moods are better now. Uh, glad to hear that. So let's start with the first question. You have uh, this amazing educational and professional background. Can you introduce yourself and present yourself to our listeners so they okay. uh, also get familiar a bit more? I study computer science in Aristotle University of Thessaloniki, and my field in computer science was ICT in education, so how to design and develop also mm -hmm. educational tools. In 2010, I joined Carnegie Mellon University in Qatar as a postdoc, working there for a year, then another year after that in United Nations University in uh, Macau, SAR, China, in the International Institute for Software Technology. Different project there, still a postdoc. Then back to Carnegie Mellon in Qatar for a year, working on Arabiati, the project that I think we're going to talk about later. Mm -hmm. And since 2014, I became a faculty member of Orfus University in Denmark as an assistant professor 
at first and then later on as an associate professor. And one week uh, after the first lockdown, I joined the University of Twente as an associate professor in the Department of Instructional Technology. Before we go and maybe some of your beginnings, how was joining the university in Netherlands basically immediately going go online? How this affected in general? <laughs> this was this was a very, very, let's say, interesting experience because you have all the big issues like how am I going to meet my colleagues? Mm-hmm. I, I met some of my colleagues two weeks ago in person for the first time because we were not allowed to meet. How am I going to meet people that I have to work with? How am I going to teach? So these are the big issues, but you also have smaller issues when you move to a new country and you have to find a way to have furniture in your place. And then you know that IKEA does not deliver anymore or delivery times are like months. So you have all the daily issues. You have all the major issues. It was an experience. I'm still happy that I'm here. I'm, I think, thankful that I had to deal with this pandemic while I was being here because people were also very supportive. Alive and well, let's say. (laughs) You have finished university in Greece and you did your PhD there. And the topic was design and evaluation of case-based learning environments Mm -hmm. on the web. From many perspectives, I would say this topic is important for educational technology, education and further developments. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what the study was about? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, when I started in ICT in education, my field was case-based learning in ill-structured domains. These are domains that have a lot of irregularities and complexities. So for example, medicine is a a very typical example of an ill-structured domain, while mathematics is a well-structured domain because it's non-contextual in that level. So I was studying case-based learning and how we can design and develop tools for that. We had the tool at the time, I mean, I developed a tool for my PhD called a case, and we used it in different studies. And then this is where you have to understand as a computer science scientist for the first time that uh, learning sciences matter and you need to have a, a solid instructional theory behind any of your design. You cannot just think of ideas. So this is where my interaction with learning sciences, with educational psychology started and how to design something that will be appropriate for learning. So our, let's say, theoretical foundation was at the time cognitive flexibility theory. And we also had to incorporate things like context awareness, like epistemological beliefs and preferences of of the learners, uh, how to use question prompts to trigger reflection and so on. So the field of the study was primarily software project management, which is a very typical instruction domain as well, and something that was very, very relevant for the students that we had in the school. So it would be easier for us to get participants for the study. Uh, At the later stages of my PhD, uh, I started working on how students can collaboratively learn through cases. So we started incorporating designs about peer reviewing and about collaboration scripts that were emerging also at the time. So I met a lot of people. Also, Armin Weinberger mm-hmm. was one of the people that I met in uh, the Kaleidoscope, which was an excellent opportunity for us in Kaleidoscope Network of Excellence. Because of this later stage, I moved gradually to full-time working on collaborative learning and collaborative activities and how we can incorporate, let's say, the principles of different learning theories into a technological design and how the user can actually understand and feel the differences like that. 
because of my connection with people in educational psychology, I started working more on collaboration scripts, following the computer support collaborative learning community through the initially it was the Alpine Rendezvous, later also in the in the conferences, the CSL conference, the ICLS conference. And this is where you find me now, actually. I think my main research area now is collaborative learning. And these are the, let's say, the topics that I'm trying to to focus on during the many different projects that have been involved with. When it comes to the outcomes, as you said, like some of the things that come into mind from this part of my career was how important it is to be explicit when you write your opinion, when you when you write down your understanding, and especially when you have to discuss with another person to find out if you have the same understanding for a case, for example, how important it is to have something written beforehand, even though there are different ways of thinking about that. Maybe some people have done studies that say it's the opposite. If you don't write something down, it, you may be more open to different opinion. But anyway, these are the things that we worked during this sequence of studies, let's say, this series mm-hmm. of studies. You had the opportunity to work with people from different cultures, to be in totally different setting from the one where you studied. How that influenced on the type of projects that you worked on, influenced you as a researcher, what that brought to the projects itself, and Mm -hmm. what were in general the projects that you enjoyed the most? First of all, you get to understand how people have different opinions and different perspectives, right? Culture matters, and it matters not only on how you're going to conduct your study, but also how you're going to design the study and what kind of research people are looking for in a particular project and so on. In many cases, the postdoc had already direction because there was already a project that had some budget for a particular position. Mm -hmm. So you already know, for example, that if you're going to join Carnegie Mellon in Qatar, you're going to work on Arabiati, which is a project that uses very cool technologies for kindergarten students to learn the Arabic alphabet and try to identify the difference between modern standard Arabic and Qatari dialect, right? So you know that it's about design and developing of different learning experiences. Some are exercises like how to write different letters, but others were like games. Try to identify which letter starts with this sound because every sound is a particular letter. So if you pronounce it differently, you route it you write it differently. So there was already a direction, but you get to understand how people see things differently in different cultures, how context or the structure of your organization changes. Sometimes there is a strong hierarchy and everybody has to address everybody else with all the titles that this other person has achieved during the lifetime. Other times is a completely flat, let's say, society. Everybody talks to everybody else in first name base and so on. So these things actually affect how also you have to act as a researcher, how you are going to approach your participants, what kind of studies or what kind of material you can have access to. In in general, I'm very thankful that I had to, to do this trip around the world because you really get to open your mind, especially if you're coming from computer science and you have engineers all around you, you get to see how technology is used and then you see that, oh, no, no, this is not how technology was supposed to be used, for example, and then you realize that the user is the one that you're supposed to serve and not the other way around. So you get to to be adaptable and flexible no matter what. You cannot survive otherwise. So this was a, a huge school and a lot of great experiences throughout the world because of that. Mm-hmm. 
in different parts of the world, it's completely different how people approach to work, how they communicate in the team and so on. What was the most challenging atmosphere and the project that you had to adapt on in those terms? That would be, uh, I mean, the most challenging and maybe the, the one that I will remember for many, many years to come would be Qatar course. Mm -hmm. Qatar was the most challenging one, maybe because it was also my first postdoc and my first time outside of Greece, but it was also the the different environment, uh, the temperatures. So it was, everything was new. Everything was different. The project was incredibly interesting and there was very well funded by Qatar Foundation. And it was very challenging because for the first time you had this very high tech technology, you have people that are very demanding because they international profile of Qatar was rising and you're doing a project about Arabic language learning and but the fact that we were using very high-tech tabletops, for example, to mm-hmm. teach kindergartens in the private Qatar Academy school how to learn different words and languages. And we had videos produced by actors from Al Jazeera mm-hmm. station. This was all surreal. All it was it was an experience that was a bit too much. It was a blockbuster study. It was very challenging. It was extremely challenging, very, very long hours, a lot of pressure because we were working for an American university in the Middle East. We had to adhere to different rules for U.S. and also for Qatar Foundation. So when, for example, I remember I ha- we had to get uh, ethics approval to do the study and we had to pass the ethics approval locally, but also in Pittsburgh. And this took some time. And we knew that because we wanted to help kindergarten students to learn the alphabet you have to start very early. You cannot start the study while they already know the alphabet. Mm -hmm. So we had the deadline coming that we couldn't control. And yeah, some things were slow, but we managed. But the good thing was that at the end, it was a successful project. People liked it. Media liked it. So we had Mm -hmm. nice coverage in different newspapers there. It was a nice experience overall, but it was a school. Definitely it was a school. It was an amazing learning experience. What was something that for in the practice later emerged from the whole project? We used the Samsung SUR40 with Microsoft Surface. And this was an era before Microsoft had the tablet called Surface. And it was an amazing piece of equipment. It was very expensive. I think it cost something like $10,000. If I remember correctly, there were only nine tables in the country, one in the National Museum, one in the National Bank, and seven in the kindergarten that we Mm -hmm. uh, were working on. It was amazing because it was using infrared technology and not conductivity, which means we could print something like a QR code. You can stick it underneath any physical object. You put it on the table and the table interacts. So we had functionalities that I haven't seen since then. And it was, as I said, very expensive, but it was also very good because you don't need special lightning settings, for example. Uh, I've seen many, many new tables and they need, you know, you need to pull the curtains so it will be a little bit darker because uh, it needs contrast or because conductivity needs to be handled in a specific way and so on. So technology-wise, it was something that I haven't seen since then. 
it is hard to make this kind of technology available broadly in every kindergarten or every in, a, in any school. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about kindergartens. I'm talking about even universities. I remember we had a table like that, that some of the researchers at uh, Aarhus University have developed themselves. And it was fine, but you also have this lagging thing because it's not responsive as a tablet because mm-hmm. it's bigger. It has different kind of uh, uh, hardware inside. The good thing for us was that uh, because we had kindergarten schools and this table was 14 inches, the students were not able to reach across the table. So mm-hmm. it was a shared interface, but the students really had to collaborate to finish the activity because part of the interface was on the other side and there was another kid on the other side. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't finish the activity themselves. And this is also something that people in CSEL suggest, like split when uh, interaction should happen. So if you cannot finish it on your own, you really need to collaborate with others. And the physicality of the table was as such that the students actually had to collaborate. They had to, to do things like that. For me, this was an insight on how different uh, interfaces can actually support or inhibit collaboration. Because mm-hmm. we know, for example, that if you're having a personal computer and you have a mouse and a keyboard, you have one uh, operator, even though you may have people collaborating. So it's not democratic. Someone has to input the information. But if you have a tangible interface, like the cubes coding that I was involved at some point briefly, anybody that's around the table can pick up an interface element and participate in the activity. So you see things like that. You understand that different interfaces support different activities, and this is a very strong implication. But when it comes to technology, it's very hard to see how this would be integrated in a broad sense because it is expensive and because we need teachers on board, we need administrators on board, we need to find out how we're going to use it and how we actually need this, especially in technologies that are still rising, you have a new model in a couple of years that is way faster, way cheaper. So do we need something right now or should we wait? Or So there are many different discussions that have nothing to do with the research or the science about it, mm-hmm. but they affect how these kinds of projects can have a, an impact on education. During talking about this project, you mentioned Project The Cube, and I would like to go to this project with tangible interfaces and how actually this learning design influences what are technological requirements in CSEL environment. We already started to talk about that, and you have these projects like The Cube, which was really huge project. Saga tool and audience yeah. response system and the Colm yeah. project. So maybe yeah. you can introduce the concept, the studies yeah. and something that you find really most important in research and in practical sense for education that actually emerges from these, these projects. Yeah. Well, in short, Colmook was an Erasmus Plus project that ended officially this summer. This is when we submitted the final deliverables and they were accepted and we officially closed the project. The project was about conversational agents in MOOCs. Mm -hmm. So people were participating in different MOOCs that we created and they had to form diets and discuss a topic. And the conversational agent was, let's say, monitoring the discussion and was intervening based on the APT, Academically Productive Talk Framework, prompting students to either reflect or build upon or add on something that the other person has said. 
It was based on rule-based techniques, which means that we had to preemptively in the design phase set up some trigger rules, like if the students discuss this, then you should say this thing. If they go ahead and discuss this other thing, you should say this thing. And we have, of course, a range of different outcomes there in different MOOCs as well. It was promising. You could see that, again, it is a way to make education, especially in MOOCs that are maybe in solidarity, in um, isolation, you can see that they can become more social and interactive. So our next step, and let's see how this will go, of course, is using conversational agents that are based on machine learning. So we already have a, a PhD project here running for now almost a year. And the basic idea is the same, uh, how to have a conversational agent in a collaborative learning task. We don't care about MOOCs anymore. It's about mm -hmm. learning in general, in different settings, uh, small groups, big groups, online, hybrid, and so on. But the idea is how to have natural language processing and maybe have an automated way to have the agent intervening meaningfully so that the discussion will be better. And uh, as I said, this is a PhD project that has already started. At some point, we hope that we will have also a bigger project, maybe a European one, mm -hmm. so we can find different grounds and different opportunities to work on it. But definitely that will be something that we would like to do. Hello everyone, this is Alan, and I'm just here to tell you that for today's episode, we are coming to a close. Professor Papadopoulos has much more to tell us about the Cube and Saga and about how practicability is essential when developing educational technology. We didn't want to cut him short, so you will hear the second part of this interview in two weeks. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again soon. This is EduTech XP.